Hey listeners, welcome to It's the People, our interview series where we explore the underbelly of building companies and investment portfolios with high-octane founders, limited partners, and fund managers. We hope these conversations push you to be even better at what you do. This week, my partner Randy Brandoff and I had the opportunity to interview a fascinating entrepreneur. We discussed a range of topics, including fears of not learning fast enough, the value of input and coaching, the difference between emotionally driven and logically driven environments, and the value of a strong and highly complimentary business partner. Our guest, Amanda Von Getz, is the founder and CEO of Fermata, a data and analytics software that enables investigative agencies to solve investigations faster with better outcomes. Pretty cool stuff. Originally a professional pianist, Amanda transitioned to the technology industry after teaching herself to code and founding a web development agency. Amanda has also worked on the operations side of an early stage venture fund, Chasella Capital Partners, where she focused on authoring technology tools to help startups optimize their operations. She completed graduate studies at the Juilliard schools and later on at MIT. Before we begin, I wanna note that this interview is for informational purposes only and that the opinions expressed should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. TI Ventures is a seed stage fund focusing primarily on early stage B2B technology companies with an obsessive focus on end customers and early teams. To start things off, Amanda begins the conversation with her fascinating life story in 60 seconds. You know, Amanda, thrilled to have you here. Maybe you can start things off with a quick life story in 60 seconds or so um, for everybody listening. Thanks so much for having me. Um, well, I guess my background, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. I grew up in a small town in New Jersey called Mendham. And when I was five years old, I started to play the piano, started taking lessons. When I was 10 years old, uh, I was admitted to the Juilliard pre-college division in New York City and started coming into the city for lessons. At age 13, I signed to a professional management company, which was at the time called ICM Artists, and I believe today is called Opus 3. When I was 15, I played in Carnegie Hall uh, in the Isaac Stern Auditorium, so that was a really amazing highlight. And um, I started to travel a little bit overseas after that. And then I completed my undergraduate studies at the Juilliard School. And the long story short there is that I, I started getting interested in all sorts of things while I was at Juilliard, including languages. And so I ended up learning the Russian language by using the methodology of how I had learned music and the abstract structure of it. And then a few years later, I was able to transition into the technology industry by using the same abstracted structures and applying them to computing languages. And so that's how I ended up learning to code. I got a, a, my second dream in a way in, in my 2.0 era, and I was able to study at MIT and kind of take all my computing and business knowledge to the next level. And then after that, after school, I worked for Chisella Capital Partners, and I was basically helping our startups and supporting them by writing software that could help to automate certain parts of their operations. There was a strong focus on customer acquisition software at the time. And while all of that was happening, um, you know, I heard that a childhood friend of mine from a long time ago or a long time beforehand, uh, had found himself embroiled in a very expensive lawsuit over charges that I believed were really frivolous. And so I called his lawyers and I told them so, and one thing led to another, and I was added to the defense intelligence team for that particular case. And I ended up spending the summer writing software that could help investigators to accelerate their workflows. And through that process, I discovered that there was a tremendous opportunity to create within this space. 
And that's really how Fermata started. So for me, it was kind of a full circle because Fermata is actually, uh, actually a music music symbol. And that's sort of, you know, I named the company Fermata Discovery kind of as an ode to my roots. I think that was a little longer than 60 seconds. No, that was great. Um, <laughs> from, from, from pianos to product development, um, you know, and, and we'll definitely spend a bit of time learning more about Fermata, but would love to just kind of dive in a bit more to your background, Amanda. You know, one thing that came to mind as we were preparing for this was that <clears throat> you're a world-class professional pianist, you're a self-taught software engineer, and now you're the you know, CEO and founder of a, a high-growth technology business. Anything that comes to mind as far as what's enabled you to, in, in a short lifespan, we're all still relatively young, um, accomplish so much? Gosh, well, thank you very much. That's an awesome question. I, I love that question. I think um, after sort of visiting a lot of different spheres and a lot of different mini worlds, I think that perhaps what has enabled me to kind of get a visa to some of these worlds, so to speak, has been that I see a lot of connections between disciplines, fields, markets. I don't think I see super clear delineations. And I think that might've come actually from my experiences in music. Um, if you talk about product development versus musical performance, I mean, if you think about music performance, what is it? It's what is practicing? It's iteration, right? It's just a matter of, you know, continuously repeating something and discovering new things each time you do it. And I think that I naturally gravitated towards the process of product development because it's, especially in this era of web software, it's very similar. You know, you can have, you know, agile software development schedules where it's really the focus is on iteration. So I think over time, just explore, through exploration, I've noticed a lot of parallels and a lot of, um, a lot of connections and ties between all these things. So I think structures, patterns, and you know, and processes, I've managed to kind of discover these parallels between. And I think that has helped me a lot to explore you know, many things that I've been interested in. So if I could lean into that a little further, I mean, structures, pat patterns, processes, all makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know, between Juilliard and MIT, for example, there's a tremendous amount of incredibly gifted and brilliant folks with strong opinions and strong views and their approaches and in how they approach mentoring and, and just the input that you're receiving. And I wonder, you know, and this applies to so many of the entrepreneurs that we see and work with every day, you know, they're having a strong filtering function and knowing what to listen to. You listen and hear all of it, but you can't respond to all of it or you'll chase your tail. How, what's your filtering function and how do you know, you know, what, what makes you signal, hey, I should lean into this or that's not wrong per se, but it's wrong for me right now? That's also a great question. I think, well, there's two ways to look at this, right? There's, when I was in music, I actually received, to your point, um, feedback almost all the time, left, right and center, you know, and it can range from, this feedback can range from, um, wow, you have a lot of work to do to, you know, you have no talent. <laughs> and so you have to kind of take, take all the feedback in stride and not take, first of all, any feedback or yourself too seriously. I think that's really number one. You have to kind of be able to um, 
be objective wherever possible. If I were to distill the process of how I try and stay objective, I, I love feedback because it it often helps you build lenses on, on perception, things that are very important externally, let's say to a company. But if I had to break the process down, I would say it's really in three parts that for me, of course, like I'm human, like anybody. So I'll have a visceral reaction to some feedback, but I actually will ignore that visceral reaction. I'll bring some awareness to it to understand what it is, but I'll actually consciously ignore it in the moment. And then I'll sort of think through and logic it out and say, is this sound? Does this make sense? Is this, you know, is this practically true? And then I'll kind of line up the two reactions, right? And if I have to, if they're like diametrically opposed or they're not aligned, I'll probably go with the logical one because in the end, it's it's really about whether I think it's valuable and that if it's aligned with where we are right now. So I think what did help though, to your question and to your point about Juilliard and MIT, in the arts world, things were much more emotionally driven. People were much more, it was all about emotional exploration. And then when I was at MIT, it was all about science and logic and process and structure. And so my hope is that, you know, in experiencing a little bit of both sides of those those worlds that it, it hopefully gives me some range and flexibility to work with in, in my processes. I, you, you strike me as somebody who's incredibly logical and, you know, in, in your thinking and, and I'm guessing like, at, you know, day to day when you're in the flow of writing lines of code and like it all has to work. And, and yet if you only did things that were logical and that worked, you know, you, you might not build something that changes the game, where is the role of kind of art and creativity, particularly as it relates to kind of what you're building now? Um, where's the role for art and creativity in, in what you're doing now? I mean, to be honest, I, I, you know, prior to starting Formata, I could fall in love with a bunch of business ideas. I could fall in love with an idea a day. But then it comes also to the vetting process and to the, the do, doing due deal on an idea, right? And validating an idea, making sure the market is there. And do you understand customer psychology? And do you understand the sales process and what it's going to take to get into those markets? So I think it's definitely a combination of both. You can be absolutely in rapture with an idea, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it will work. And similarly, you can also be very logically you know, logically plan out an idea or a, a path to market, and it, it just may not work out like that. So I think living on the extreme, on either extreme, is not is not great. It's how you combine them into the recipe that that sort of is how you view a company, an idea, or or even a moment. So for me, um, what drives me in Fermata uh, is really like a love of what our mission is, what our vision is, which which is really to hopefully positively impact the investigation field and you know ultimately help to support investigators to try and bring more cases to resolution. So at the big picture, at the abstract level, certainly it's an emotional drive and inspiration that that kind of keeps you going, that gives you the fuel and the juice to bring it every day. But I think when you get there every day, that process can be, you know, logic up so that there's also like some structure behind what you're doing. I forget who said it. I think it was Mark Cuban, but someone had said, I remember hearing an interview recently 
um, where it wasn't, you know, do, you know, figure out what you're passionate about and go and work in it. And, and you'll, you know, you'll never work a day in your life was one of the old adages. And they said, that's wrong. Figure out what you're good at and go and work in it. And you'll become passionate about it as well, because, you know, through doing good work and achievement, you'll find your, you'll find passion. And it, it strikes me that, you know, you could probably be good at most anything, literally anything you set your mind to. You have that, you know, that, that capability. And so in choosing to dedicate what has been and will be considerable time and focus to Fermata, is it, is it almost because it chose you? Is it because, you know, much like I'm sure with piano playing starting at five years old, you just, all you wanted to do was play? And you realized that you were so enraptured by the challenge. And if, if not that, then how did you know that this is where you were going to focus for now? In many respects, I think that Fermata is the, is the combination of many things that I love. It's, um, you know, a, a good puzzle, a good mystery. Who doesn't love a good mystery? <laughs> I think it's combined with the study of people, which for me, you know, my experiences in music, it ha they enabled me to meet a lot of different types of people across the world and, you know, and have friends from virtually every background. So that piece is also interesting to me. And then we're also bringing a technology focus to it as well and seeing if we can use tech to help support humans in their study of, let's say, the human condition, for lack of a better term. So for me, I think, in, it, again, like going back to that logical lens, it sort of makes a lot of sense when you kind of have it at an analytical level. If I then speak from an emotional lens on the matter, you know, I started the company or the company ended up as an outgrowth of me trying to help a friend because there was a situation I just felt was very unfair. And as I've worked more cases over time, and as I worked with more professionals in investigation, I have learned about just how much, um, or rather how many cases go unsolved out there because of lack of time, lack of information, lack of access to information. And, um, that drives me tremendously at an emotional level to see if there's something that we can do about that to move the needle. So to be honest, it, again, it's like about how these lenses line up. And for me, it's sort of they, they fulfill, you know, both parts of, of sort of what I think drives me at a creative level. Um, so that's maybe why I'm very excited about it. I, I will say actually one thing just to tack on to that is that I did know, I think it's a little bit like falling in love with, with anything, a discipline, a, you know, a, a person, anything. You just know <laughs> in a way when it happens. <clears throat> and, and so just building on this point though, everybody has a plan and things kind of <clears throat> fall into place, maybe sometimes look rosy from the outside and then you set yourself to it and there's just problems after problems and you're constantly having to solve these problems. And I'm curious, like now that you've set yourself to this new activity, <clears throat> is there anything that has surprised you in particular about building a company versus, I don't know, the other things that you've set yourself to in the past where they had their own challenges, but something in, you know specific about trying to build a, a business here? Um, that's a tough question because I think, I think one thing I have discovered actually is that, you know, the level of trust that you have to have in your team in order to, to 
delegate in order to allow people to carry out processes on behalf of the company is a very different ballgame than if you are executing something that is under your control or in your hands. And I would say in my experience, largely, you know, at the piano, things were sort of, you know, mostly in my, under my hands. Um, and in programming, things were mostly under my hands. And, you know, at that time, I did have a team, but they were engineers, it was a team of engineers. And so it was a different type of management flow than say, you know, sales and business development. So I would say that that has surprised me in the sense of it takes a very different type of workflow and working with people in order to build that level of trust to let go just enough so that somebody else can execute as opposed to you doing it yourself. That's been an adjustment. And, you know, I consider it a very good growing learning lesson and experience. Yeah. I mean, you've moved from like a one person sport to a team sport now, and you talk about kind of the different style and workflow. I mean, it, it, are you finding that you're having to build muscles, new, like new muscles that you never had before? And if so, what are they? Certainly, I would say, yeah, I would say that one of the biggest things that I've had to work on or, or learn on the fly is that every person communicates very differently. And when you say something with a certain intent, it's actually not as important as what that person hears. And so you have to develop very quickly different modes of communication that will resonate with different people to basically hit the target, acquire the goal, however, you know, what the objective is. And I think that was a big learning experience for me thus far, um, because I just realized that everybody hears something different and getting everyone aligned and keeping them aligned is a constant um, process and it, it requires constant maintenance. So that was a very, I think, important takeaway from, from the early stage that we're at. One of my favorite TAA-isms is the notion that product preciousness can be a terminal disease, that, you know, perfection, the striving for perfection is, is, is works in conflict with progress and movement and being out there. And, you know, I imagine that perfection was the goal and even achieved, you know, in performances when you were growing up and playing. And has it been really hard to shift your brain to the mindset of progress and not perfection? That's also a great question. I think perfection in general, I mean, it's more of a philosophical statement, but I think it's totally a mirage, right? Because you strive for it, even at the piano or any other discipline in sports or in chess, and you're never quite going to attain it. You might, you know, think you might come really close to an ideal personally that you might have, but I don't think you're ever going to capture it. And so I think that I did maybe bring that over from music as well in that not to have the expectation of perfection. Um, and I also, I think that one of the things that I think I gravitate towards more towards the technical side and software development and product development, even perhaps more so than to music is that in music, when you give a performance, it's, you know, you all do all this work for 15 minutes or 20 minutes that you're on stage. Maybe you're doing a recital and it's two hours with an intermission, but it's pretty short and it's codified in a very like succinct format. With software, actually, it's living and breathing in the sense that if you do a release and there's something that you don't like or there's a bug that's pretty critical, you can go ahead and rewrite that and you can hotfix that and you can patch it tomorrow. So in a way, it's like you have you know, more than, than one window that's, that in music is pretty narrow. So, you know, that's 
may perhaps neither here nor there, but I found that to be interesting in the way that I perceive the concept of perfection. Well, it's, it's a safety net, yeah, you know, it's, a it's right. It's not, it's, it's not the live performance. You can go back and patch it. Yeah. And, you know, and it's never over. I mean, it's never, ever over by the same token, there's trade-offs with that, right? If you turn in a performance that you're really happy with, and that is as close to like, let's say perfection as you think you're ever going to get, um, you know, it's over, you've done it. It's laid down. Maybe it was recorded, but with a software product, it never stops. It will continue interminably for the life cycle of the product. So, you know, these are the trade-offs, I think. Also, is, is that daunting the idea that it could potentially never end? Yes and no. I think it's, it's, I think, you know, products do mature, right? So the infrastructure and the, and the back end that's supporting your product will eventually mature where the, where it's, where everything is stable and you sort of move into a next phase of its life cycle. Um, I don't know if it's really daunting. I think maybe it's, it's something that maybe people get to a point where they're like, I think that this product is, is done. I think maybe we're finished with it. And we do see that sometimes you'll see products that are retired or legacy or, you know, shelved. And um, maybe that's just because they know that they've kind of reached the end of the road. And it's like, like a good TV show. They know that there's not much left to develop in the, in the character narratives. You Although know, they right? just brought friends back, right? Well, there you go. <laughs> there themselves. you go, right? <laughs> and, and some things are classic like that, right? Like, I mean, the original Nintendo can still be emulated today or brought back or relicensed. There's, you know, you can give new life to a product that's also been legacy. So I think it's never really over and probably shouldn't be. All right. So if that's not daunting, and I'm going to ask you to respond in five seconds or less, <laughs> what are you, what are you afraid of? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh gosh, I'm afraid that that I am not learning as fast as I need to be. I think that is something that I am afraid of because you know, I don't think that I work slowly and I don't think that I learn slowly, but you know, at the speed at which the company is cruising, sometimes they do question, am I picking it up fast enough? Am I really, am I scaling the learning curve at, as I need to? And so I think that is something I'm definitely afraid of, you know, giving it the good old try to stay up to where I need to be. Um, I do think that, you know, I imagine that, you know, companies that are more mature and more advanced and developed than, than we are, maybe that speed just continues to increase interminably and maybe it's just something I will adjust to with time. I'm not sure. Um, but I would say that if I had to sum up my fear, it's that, it's that. So how do you feeding off of that, especially first time founders, but you know, some founders never, never get out of it. Just there's always more work to be done. There's always a feel that you need to be moving faster. And so, so you just keep spinning the wheel and you grind yourself down to a point where actually it becomes counterproductive. How do you balance that notion that you, you have to move faster with probably a, a aware with all that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and you need to and you need to be right in it for the long haul? I think the question that keeps me really grounded or hopefully keeps me grounded is am I working efficiently enough? So it's really not a question of of quantity or hours. It's a question of, am I getting to the heart of what needs to be done? Am I keeping a balance between the short run goals and the larger strategic milestones that we need to hit? Am I, you know, am I prioritizing ruthlessly enough? I think that's more, you know, the questions that I'm trying to ask myself these days. 
on the subject of ruthless prioritization, I really start to think, you know, at a daily level, like what is it that I need to be accomplishing or hitting today? Okay, that floats to the top um, by the end of the week, by the end of the month, and so on and so forth. This has meant for me that like I don't have as much time as I used to for other things. I used to love to help friends with projects or, you know, help to 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 mentor students. I just don't. It's not that they don't matter to me. They still matter to me just as much. But it's just that I don't have the same float time as I used to. So anything that does not produce a return to Formata in terms of time invested is something that will that may need to be on the chopping block for the moment. And I think one of the things I try very hard to do is to detach emotionally from what I put on the chopping block. It's just a fact, it, you know, it's that logic side. It's that this has to be cut because there's an opportunity cost to everything that we do. And so I think that's also been a little bit of an adjustment and I kind of keep myself constantly in check with that. But so far it's, you know, the adjustment and that kind of growth, I guess, has helped. It, these questions have helped me a lot. And, and, and we're all victims of 24 hours in the day. There's, you know, only so much you can learn. <clears throat> um, and I know you want to, you, you're, you're fearing that you could be learning more faster, but there's only so much you can do in 24 hours. <clears throat> and at some point you need people. And I know we talked a bit about going from like a one person sport to a team sport. Uh, are you, do you have, or, or, or are you kind of developing philosophies on building that team and hiring as Fermata gets going faster and faster and, and needs more, you know, more talent, more fuel, more, um, you know, just more, more smart people learning fast. Like you want to learn, uh, day to day within the 24 hours that we're constrained by. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I should mention, I have a really, really awesome co-founder, Lisa Sikowski, who isn't here today, but she is, she's the COO of Fermata Discovery. And she really has done a phenomenal job of getting the house in order, so to speak, like really internally pulling everything together, aligning people on the same page, making sure that they're driving towards goals. She's just absolutely awesome at it. So that, and she has a lot of experience with working with teams as a member, intrinsic member of them. So that has helped tremendously to establish process. Um, for hiring, I would say now, and you know, the way we're approaching it right now, and probably this will extend into the future, um, I'm gonna quote one of our very valued advisors because it comes down to, I think for us, you know, can do, will do, and fit, right? So can somebody do the job based on their track record, their history, their domain expertise, their experience? will they follow through on the things that they promise? You know, do they seem like that kind of person? Have they proven that in the past? Um, is it in their approach? And these are of course like fairly tactical and pretty tangible. And then of course there's the third one, which is fit, which is the least tangible perhaps, but that comes back to that communication piece. It's like, does it flow? And you know, are you able to share ideas efficiently and are you able to work and build things, um, you know, together? Does it take a thousand words to communicate or just, you know, 50? And so that's more of a, of just a vibe thing. And I would say it sort of extends the same to investors as well, because you're working with them and it's kind of a two-way hiring process, right? When you, when you take on investors and when investors take on you as a portfolio company, it's also, I think, a question of does it flow well and is the dynamic easy to manage and to expand on? So I think 
I kind of think of them in, in, in similar ways. And, and if we forced you to pick two of the three, can do, will do, and fit, and you had to, to your point, dispassionately kill one. I would kill, actually, I would kill can do, because to me, will do, like your commitment and your ability to follow through on something is extremely important. And um, also, you know, fit, if it's if it flows well and the person is, is a good fit for the for the rest of the team, I think that it in that scenario, then even can do based on previous experience is sort of falls in the priorities because I tend to believe that if a person has certain qualities and they are flexible to being able to work within a number of different dynamics, I would believe that they could probably be onboarded for most of the things that you know would that roles would command. Of course, that also depends on what the role is. So like all good things in life, it depends. Yeah, I would say these are um, strong uh, strong values or theories that you'll have to hold loosely in the event. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> subject to change, that's what this Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All subject to change. All subject to change. So Amanda, and, I, and you, you made some good points on investor fit that I want to put a pin in and we'll come back to in a second. I'd love to talk for a minute. Yours, this is an interesting space that Fermata plays in. You have a few well-known, really sized and scaled power players um, that that act and exert that power. And then, and you have, you know, government entities and other entities that, you know, are, you know, in, in, in law enforcement, you name it, that have set ways about doing things that aren't known for dynamism and, and recreating themselves, reinventing themselves every every few years. How, in with that landscape and that backdrop, how do you think about carving out an ever bigger slice of the pie for Fermata? Well, it's interesting because, well, if I take sort of one, if we go kind of in, in order, I would address the public sector situation first, because I think you're, you know, you're right on the on the mark with what you said. Um, and, you know, the short version is that we brought on to our team at people who have expertise in the public sector because culturally it's very different doing business there and the, the process um, of conversation development is very different than, say, in the private sector or in the corporate area. Um, and so we basically brought on somebody who has tremendous experience in law enforcement background and understands the context very well. So that has helped us to understand and get up to speed with how um, you know, contracts are, and also proposals are viewed, that has helped tremendously. Um, I also think there's a lot actually of more openness from government entities to, you know, earlier stage companies, certainly tied to threat detection or to, um, you know, intelligence. I think that what I'm, what we're seeing based on, you know, advice that we're getting as well, um, there's more openness than perhaps there used to be. So that's one thing that's been interesting to discover. If we then address things on the private sector side, I think that, again, to your point, you're absolutely right. There's a couple of really big incumbent players in the space. Um, but, you know, the market is much larger than just what the incumbents are capturing. And I think there's been a good part of, you know, latitude that hasn't actually really been addressed or hasn't really been um, even gone after, I would say. So it, you know, without pretending that I know everything about the market, I would say that I think that there's a lot of opportunity that just perhaps hasn't been addressed or hasn't been attacked in such a way. Um, there could be a number of reasons for it because of the industry dynamics, which you pointed out. It's a fairly opaque industry. Um, people are you know, very discreet. The whole industry is very much uh, predicated on discretion. So I think that those things make the, the picture a little bit foggier. 
Um, but I, you know, I think that it's a very interesting market though. And what I've noticed culturally about the investigation industry is that the people who are drawn to it tend to be really just have a tremendously profound love of puzzles and of problems and be dedicated to solving them. And so we found actually, you know, great ease in talking to people about their pain points and understanding need. So, you know, there, that's come with a tremendous upside. And, and this may be my fault. We may have some listeners that are saying, wow, I'm so interested. I'll have to go to the website. Amanda, can you just, you know, give us a quick thumbnail sketch of, of what Fermata is? Sure. So Fermata Discovery is a software development firm that creates tools to help investigators accomplish their work faster. And more specifically, you know, we have a workflow product called Vixen that we developed specifically for investigators to conduct an end-to-end -end investigation. Everything from, you know, gathering information on subjects of interest to visualizing that information and gleaning high-level insights. Um, all the way through to a reporting function that will help them output the information um, for clients. So it's been a very, uh, it's been an interesting process to develop this product because it's required us to do a little method acting and playing the role ourselves. So we've basically worked a, a ton of different cases um, and played the role of an investigator. Um, it's been really fascinating. So it's with that, from that place that we designed this product. If we could shift gears a little bit, and, and Randy kind of noted it, um, you talked a bit about fit, team fit, um, you know, managing, delegating, inspiring the team, and then you talked a bit about kind of investment partner fit. Uh, you you recently raised around a capital, and you know, so this should be hopefully top of mind. How did you wind up choosing the partners um, that you wanted to work with, and? You know, maybe the flip side of that question is how, how do you decide who you don't want to work with or who isn't a good fit? Sure. Again, like, you know, I'm sounding like a broken record here, but there were really two aspects to it. There was the practical side of things. Um, you know, do do um, do the partners of, of a fund in question, do they bring, you know, something to the table, unique experiences? Have they been operators themselves? These were important questions that we felt or we felt that were important during this raise. Um, because my in my experience so far, I think that investors who have been operators, you can feel a difference because there's a certain compassion to to towards founders because somebody has lived that reality and that story before. Um, are they thoughtful? Do they listen well? Or do they put you in a bucket really quickly? So these are sort of qualities that I think, you know, I looked for, um, you know, when I was speaking to a number of different investors. Um, and then there's that second piece. The second aspect is really about vibe. Does it flow? Is it easy to communicate? Is it going to take me 15 minutes to get an idea across that should really only take like hopefully a couple of minutes? Are you aligned? Do you know those those are again like it comes back to that parallel between hiring and and seeking investors. And um, similarly, you know, the opposite of that is sort of how we design decided who we did not want to work with. If I guess the one thing I would say sounds trite, but it's I found the whole process of getting to know different investors to be a little bit like dating in a sense, right? It's that if it feels forced, it's probably always going to feel forced and it probably is not going to get better or easier. It might actually get more difficult over time. And so I think that was sort of what I what I figured out 
midway through the process is that I was really hoping and I really truly lucked out that I ended up with investors where everything just sort of flows very nicely and therefore you can have a very meaningful creative relationship. And um, so I guess if, if a founder is fortunate enough that you're able to, to pick and choose who you might want to work with, then, you know, have the, go through the practical and go through the intuitive and, you know, then just say, well, thank you so much, but I just don't think we're the right fit and call it a day. Did anything in the process surprise you from, you know, how you thought it might go going in? And is any of that applicable, you know, to what you would take into subsequent fundraisers? Um, I think what I learned from it is that it takes a long time for people to get to know you. And not just in terms of just absolute time and i'm not even saying like you know the fundraise took so long it didn't we were very lucky actually and it, we were at it a few months but it takes a lot of energy for somebody to wrap their head around your business your idea your context your life who you are your values and you know so i guess you kind of go into it thinking that you will be able to communicate that immediately. But the reality is it takes a long time for people to build contact. So I would say maybe the next time that I go about this, you know, I would try to help more for people to build that context, perhaps like provide more information or materials that could help people build that context faster. That makes a lot of sense. Credit where credit is due here, because you're kind of leading to the what enabled us to title this interview series, and that was Randy Brandoff, which was, it's the people, right? Like, I know we talk a lot about products and markets and industries and businesses, but, you know, oftentimes you lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, this is people interacting with people, whether it's founders and their customers, whether it's, you know, founders and their investors, whether it's investors and their investors um you know it's we're all you know it's all just people at the end of the day so absolutely, absolutely. and you know i think you know i recall that when i had my first conversation with wills that it really it just flowed and you know you get off the phone and you're like wow he i like him he's very he's like a very transparent honest person there's a good vibe he listens really well like can you kind of do that that um that kind of analysis after you're off the phone with somebody, you just get a good vibe and it just leads to another conversation. Um, one thing also I specifically liked when I first, you know, engaged with you guys is I liked how you approached the concept of um, your relationship with your portfolio companies that you really do consider them partners and you consider the relationships partnerships. And I think that's wonderful because ultimately, especially at the early stage of a company where we are right now, that's pretty much exactly what we are looking for, what we need, in my opinion. So I just, you know, really liked all of those things. You, you basically checked all the boxes on the practical side. And also you guys were just cool as well. Some of us, at least. <laughs> but thank you. I was being self-effacing, not putting myself as the cool one. Too Spoken from the guy who's worked at alcohol companies and jet companies and watch companies. Pretty awesome. <laughs> it's, that's halo effect, man. You can look cool when you're surrounded by cool. I, I think we probably have one last question here, Amanda. You've been super generous with your time and insights. Um, you know, and, and I think maybe it's a challenging question. 
we uh, spent a little time thinking about this, but if your company is successful, Fermata is successful, in theory, we live in a safer world. Does that come at a cost? Does that come at a cost? Oh gosh, that is a very, very difficult question, Wells. I like, <laughs> I like it. Um, you know, I, I think everything is a question of trade-offs in the world, right? And when I think about gathering information, analyzing data, that's because it's, it's made possible by the fact that we are just swimming in data today. I think we have to be responsible with how we are putting out data and how we're capturing data from the web. I think that's very important. Um, but I, I basically think philosophically, I think if we are all sort of surrendering a little bit of our online privacy, which we are through apps like social media driven and things like that, you know, hopefully the return that we're getting for that sacrifice is the fact that, you know, people who are out there doing things that they shouldn't be or doing things that are illegal or doing absolutely terrible things will also be as visible as everybody else. And so it's, it's sort of just, that would be, I guess, my only, my only trade-off that I could think that I, I personally would be prepared to make. I don't expect everybody to be, to be prepared to, but I would be. I think it's just back to the, it's the people. It's also reassuring to know that, um, you know, who are, who are the individuals behind, you know, the companies that are doing these kinds of things. And you couldn't ask for more authentic, clear-minded, uh, human people to do this kind of work. So. Oh, well, thank you. You know, I learned from the investigators in the industry that I met, um, very often they have worked on legendary cases with very known, visible, famous people. And as close as I am to some of them, and I've worked cases with them, I will never get details about them from them because they are so um, discreet about the work they've done. And so, you know, that is something that gave me a lot of comfort and confidence when I came into the industry is to know that it's, it's a bit opaque for, for a very good reason. And that's that people are protecting other, the stories of others. Yeah, it'd be easy to name drop, right? If they yeah. wanted to in a world where there's, you know, a lot of name dropping. So that's, uh, that's really interesting. And I know that you've been very, um, very similar in, in that kind of, you know, just when, when we've talked, you're always very, deliberate about what you say and what you can say so well, amanda i feel like we could continue this um and i'd love to and i want to continue this we will um, but and we will continue this particularly offline but to to keep this in a manageable length for our listeners um we will put a pin in it here um we want to thank everybody for listening in to our conversation with amanda of fermata um, to paraphrase badly from Goodwill Hunting, um, some people can just play, and you clearly can just play, and it is it is really fun to get to know you and to watch you play and to build an exciting and wonderful organization. Um, and we can't thank you enough for for speaking with us today, sharing your thoughts and insight, and just super excited for all that lies ahead. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are great. Thank you.